Conspiracy. One of the darkest words of the English language. And conspiracy theories are like grown-up ghost stories, you know, trying to spook each other out. And it turns out there's an entire industry dedicated to exploiting how strange the human mind can be. It was the bread and butter of AM radio for decades. And it makes sense. I mean, if you're driving a truck all the way across the country and you're trying to stay up all night, what better way than by listening to stuff about UFOs and the Illuminati? Well, I mean, that in doing a line of meth. My very first conspiracy theory was that the public schools were in cahoots with the soda companies. And my reason was that there's something called Dr. Slice. You ever had it? It's the best. I mean, I hated going to high school, but the only reason I would show up was that you could not get Dr. Slice in any store. The only way to drink this stuff was by showing up to Dana Hills High School and patronizing one of their vending machines. But my introduction to conspiracy culture was through a movie called California, with a K, and it had Brad Pitt playing the serial killer named Early Grace. Now, he didn't eat breakfast, because folks needing breakfast is a myth put out by the cereal people. And I never ate breakfast. So it was a breakthrough for me because it's like, what else are they lying to us about? What else don't we need? Of course, the only thing we usually had to eat for breakfast in my house was peanut butter flavored Captain Crunch, which always left that really weird sensation on the roof of my mouth. Anyway, there was also a show in the early 90s. It was only on for one season, but it was called Eerie Indiana. And it showed how... Everyone kind of goes through a shitty detective phase at some point. This kid had just moved from a big city to a small town, and he's seeing crazy stuff everywhere. But is he crazy, or is the world crazy? Or both? And every episode ended with him putting away another eerie artifact for safekeeping. Uh, things like a headgear that, when worn, allows you to hear dogs plotting against human beings for world domination. It's as if the veil was lifted a little higher with each episode, and the idea was that he was getting all this stuff together and was going to reveal it to the world once they were ready for the truth. And conspiracy can be a real trigger word. Like magic, there are those who don't believe in it at all, and then there are other people who seem to see it everywhere, even in the weather. Right around the time of the Great Recession, I worked on a play by Neil Simon called Prisoner of Second Avenue. Jason Alexander played someone who'd just lost his job, and he was going down one crazy rabbit hole after another, inspired by too much talk radio. And like Eerie, it showed how gullible we can be after we've lost something. Now regarding conspiracy theorists, Alan Moore said that they believe in a conspiracy because that is more comforting. The truth of the world that it is actually chaotic. It is not the Illuminati, or the bankers, or the greys. The truth is far more frightening, which is that nobody is in control. It's like watching The Price is Right your whole life, and it looks so smooth on TV, but then you show up to a live taping, and it's like, sloppy. You start to see life for what it is. A shit show. How have they even been holding it together for this long? But we are wired to find symbols in the mundane, to make meaning out of life. And did you know the federal government is actually the biggest conspiracy nut there is? That's right. If you 
commit jaywalking, it's a misdemeanor. But if you conspire to jaywalk, that is, plan to do it with three or more people, the crime is automatically elevated to a felony. In fact, every presidential candidate in 2016 seemed to pander to a different conspiracy. Jill Stein sucking up to the anti-vaxxers, Trump retweeting all kinds of crap about banks and climate change, and the best, of course, was Hillary Clinton's campaign manager, John Podesta, who kept going around insisting that the people were ready to see the UFO files. I mean, releasing them would be a great step toward transparency. So what I wanted to know is how the culture of conspiracy went from a few critical questions about things like the Kennedy assassinations to full-blown, flat-earth-believing foobar. One huge element had to be Vietnam. Fresh after the murders of JFK, RFK, MLK, and Malcolm X, we fight one of the longest and most vicious wars, and we lost? It blurred the lines between wartime and peacetime. Some of the vets became super radicalized. In 1979, five people were shot to death at a liberal demonstration in Greensboro, North Carolina. And one of the murderer's excuses was that, hey, I killed communists in Vietnam, so why shouldn't I kill communists here? Timothy McVeigh tried to trigger a white power uprising by blowing up a federal building in 95, and he did it right after reading the Turner Diaries, which is a hardcore right-wing manifesto that's inspired countless other murders since it came out in 78. If you ever played the video game Deus Ex, then you know of an insurgent group called The Order. They want to stop humans from merging with any kind of technology. They're purists, and their name is taken right out of the Turner Diaries. There was even a real-life Aryan cult that went by that same name, The Order, for a while. So then I wondered why so many conspiracy theories have such an anti-Semitic angle to them. And a lot of it goes all the way back to ancient Rome where Jews weren't allowed to run shops or be tailors or butchers, so they were forced to take jobs in finance. A lot of the great labor organizers were Jews, so by the time major business leaders were clashing with their unions the way Walt Disney was, a lot of paranoia was floating around about worldwide communist conspiracies and how they were going to take over. And then something that goes by the name of the John Birch Society came along and put all that stuff on steroids. They made this outrageous documentary called The Capitalist Conspiracy, claiming that everyone should be afraid of the New World Order, and that Dwight D. Eisenhower was a Soviet spy, which is fucking hilarious because the JBS are still around, and they're currently trying to stop the Mueller investigation, as is another one of conspiracy's sweethearts, Lyndon LaRouche. There's also the Christian Identity Movement who have made it quite clear that they want the government overthrown and the Constitution replaced with their Bible. So you'd think this stuff would have been shut down by now, but think about it. The oligarchs would love to have these goons do the dirty work of dismantling democracy for them. That way they can rule with no unions, no checks and balances. Remember, it was the guilds that brought us out of the Dark Ages in the first place. The thing about billionaires, though, is that they don't even have to conspire. They know what's good for them. And while I am a firm believer in Occam's razor, which is the idea that 99% of the time, the simplest answer is the correct answer. But what's in that 1%? Well, probably the 1%. So when you look at conspiracy theories, really try and break them down and look at how they might be defending fascism. Is it following the same old John Birch lines about government programs and socialism being bad while the free market and Christianity are good? With the Fairness Doctrine gone, 
There's like no legitimate journalism left to critique the state, which left this void open for conspiracy theories to flourish. And our shrinking attention spans don't help. It's very clickbaity. I mean, I remember wanting to do some research on the Federal Reserve, and within weeks, I was doing a deep dive into aliens and secessionist movements. I mean, it's dangerous, and it can make important investigations look cockamamie. There was a great video on MySpace with this dude, like in Downey, and he was going off about the Mexican Mafia and the Sicilian Mafia, and then he's like, what do they all have in common? They're Catholics. Dude, the Vatican. Think about it. It's classic MySpace. Robert Anton Wilson added that the border between the real and the unreal is not fixed, but just marks the last place where rival gangs of shaman fought each other to a standstill. And it's true. I mean, all of history is forged to some degree. Part fable, part propaganda. Look at Rosa Parks. She wasn't a meek old woman who just spontaneously decided not to move. She was a lifelong activist who'd attended trainings in Atlanta and D.C. and was looking for a way to challenge segregation. And she'd been thrown off that bus by that same driver 12 years before the Montgomery bus boycotts. But two teenage girls had been arrested for refusing to move that same year. And the NAACP's leadership considered them to be too poor and too young to be sympathetic. So Parks, she's older, she's more respectable and more middle class. So they thought her arrest could be made into something big. So even though there was a chance of getting her case dismissed, the decision was made to use it in a way that would inspire civil disobedience. Naturally, she was accused of being a communist, which is also what a lot of racists were saying about MLK to try and discredit his work. You know, Bill Hicks made a brilliant observation about how the left are targeted. Kennedy, murdered. MLK, murdered. Gandhi, murdered. Jesus, murdered. Reagan, wounded. And do you remember Dan White? That was the guy who killed America's very first openly gay mayor, and he got away with it by saying that eating too many Twinkies made him do it. Bill uh, also made a great point about psychedelic mushrooms. He said that the very first time he took them, he couldn't believe how much warmth and love and excitement he felt and how he wanted nothing except to be in harmony with every living being on earth. And then he realized, no wonder this stuff is illegal. And yet look how easily you can get guns and alcohol. This is not by accident. This is by design and is the same reason why the Dakota Access water protectors were being viciously attacked with rubber bullets and dogs, while the Bundy boys, quite the contrary, were getting police protection every time they needed to make a 7-Eleven run. And did you hear about the last liberal talk radio station in Madison, Wisconsin, being turned into year-long Christmas music? And that's a college town. But you can get Rush Limbaugh loud and clear, even in the hills. My orthodontist used to play Rush Limbaugh for three hours a day, Every single day. He probably listened more Limbaugh than he listened to his own wife. That's the power of talk radio. And you gotta realize that guys like Rush were stepping stones to people like Glenn Beck, which was a gateway drug to Alex Jones. So you can see how you can get millions of people to believe that Obama was a Muslim born in Kenya, whether it's true or not. It's consensus reality. And how many conspiracy theories are all about bizarre end-of-the-world scenarios? It's meta to our inability to process the knowledge of our own deaths. Because we are the living dead. 
Now, we have two interviews to get to, but first, I just want to leave you with what I think are the two most compelling conspiracies that do deserve a closer look. First, the mother of all conspiracies, the JFK assassination. This is where it all started. Gotta be the most mainstream conspiracy theory, with 63% of Americans not believing the official story. Last I checked. Okay, so what the media often forgets to remind us of is that in 1979, the United States Congress concluded that John F. Kennedy was killed in a conspiracy. They even named the top two godfathers most likely to have done it. Lee Harvey Oswald was only considered to have acted alone in the first out of six committees. That was the Warren Commission, and it was the least informed out of all six. The two mob bosses named as co-conspirators were Santo Traficante and Carlos Marcello, and that was actually their third assassination attempt, the first two being in Chicago and Tampa. In the 80s, Marcello was doing time for bribery and even wound up confessing to his cellmate, who was an undercover cop. Now, J. Edgar Hoover had been covering for the mob, in part because they were blackmailing him about the whole gay thing, so Hoover denied that the mafia even existed all the way up until 1961, and he had no choice by then because 700 organized criminals were prosecuted that first year of the Kennedy administration alone, instead of the usual 12 or so arrests per year that had been the pattern of the past three decades. Now, Kennedy had declared an all-out war on the mob, as did his brother. I know everyone claims that they must have been crooked just because their dad was a bootlegger for a little while, but it was Nixon whose very first congressional campaign was paid for by Mickey Cohen. Nixon was the master of taking illicit funds. He accepted a million-dollar bribe to lay off Jimmy Hoffa, and that's straight from the DOJ. Bibi Rebozo even kept an office and a bedroom at the White House during the Nixon years. These guys had made their fortunes from the booking circuit, and they hated seeing Batista taken out in Cuba. So the decision was made to take out Castro in 59. Remember, Nixon was VP. I don't know how great job security is for professional assassins, but it makes sense that if you're in that line of work, hey, you take jobs from the mob or the CIA or whomever. Well, Bernard Barker was one of those guys. He was both a hitman for the mob and one of the Watergate burglars for Nixon. And he claimed that... Kennedy was taken out in a way that basically they used the secrecy surrounding the plot to kill Castro against JFK instead. That way, if the truth ever came out, it would cause such embarrassment for the intelligence community because they were so enmeshed with organized crime, which explains why millions of files are still in lockdown. We do know Lee Harvey Oswald was a low-level intelligence asset, allegedly a diehard commie, but then he became a Marine and was such a fan of the enemy, he was even given a Russian nickname. Now, this is during the McCarthy era. And guess how many times Oswald was disciplined for this crap? Never. I'm sorry, but they never would have stood for that shit during the McCarthy era. And the military claimed that he had defected to the Soviet Union. But then after that, they gave him a job making maps based on photography from spy planes. Now, do you really believe our intel community would have been sloppy enough to hire a recent Soviet defector and lifelong diehard communist sympathizer? It's preposterous. And in second place for the world's most intriguing conspiracy theory, the question of Shakespeare's authorship. I think of Shakespeare as kind of being one of Earth's greatest hits albums. 
You know, it's this compilation of all these different tales put together in one place and retold, a lot like the Bible. So we'll call that Earth's Greatest Hits Volume 1. And then the third best of album would be the Walt Disney franchise. And of course, any art that's larger than life like this is, is going to attract some unruly ideas. Same way David Bowie and Mick Jagger have been accused of making packs with the devil and aliens. So you know how earlier I was talking about the Rosa Parks story being worked into a fable in a way? Well, England did something very similar with the Glover's son from Stratford. His first mention was on a list of corn and malt hoarders during a time of famine. Then he was on a registry of tax evaders. But there's no evidence that he ever, ever went to school. His father didn't know how to spell. None of his kids could write their names. And you'd think that somebody who was capable of writing this amazing art would have at least taught his children how to write their names. But the most bizarre part is that neither he nor any of his heirs ever laid any claim to any of these manuscripts. These precious treasures. What kind of businessman does that? Oh, and at Holy Trinity Church, where he's buried, it says nothing about him being a poet playwright. It simply says, Will Shakespeare Gent. There was also no mention of any of the literature in his will, even though he was extremely thorough about his property in every other regard in there. So the doubt movement, as it is known, really got underway around 1920 when this book came out by John Thomas Loney, and it was called Shakespeare Identified, and he pointed out that whoever wrote these sonnets must have been a member of the aristocracy. There's just no way that an outsider could have had so much inside technical knowledge about the finances and legal proceedings. Now, the name Shakespeare was originally hyphenated in the first folio, and a hyphen always signified a pseudonym during the Elizabethan era. And if you were a member of nobility, you definitely needed to write under a pen name. Will meant poet, and Shakespeare was a reference to the birthplace of the theater as we know it, the Palace of Athena, the Spear Shaker. So William Shakespeare's code for poet-playwright. There was also a fantastic episode of DuckTales back in the day in which Scrooge discovered the lost play of William Drakespeare. Remember that? And as we already know, Ben Jonson was responsible for the first folio reference to Shakespeare's image, not as a portrait, mind you, but as a figure. And figure meant fiction back then. So guess who was being referred to as the Spear Shaker as early as 1578? Edward de Vere, the 17th Earl of Oxford. And the 1589 book, The Art of English Posy, asserted that there were a whole bunch of secret poets in the court of Elizabeth, and that de Vere was their leader. A warrant signed by the Queen, was uncovered in 1928, showing that she was paying De Vere a thousand pounds per year in exchange for two plays every year for 18 years straight. That's a lot of money back then. I'd say the best evidence that the Glover son wrote the plays was that 400-year-old crack pipe they found right by his house in Stratford. It'd be like the Oracle of Delphi, you know, receiving all these visions from beyond that turned out to be Totally accurate prophecies, but really they were just getting high in some cave from the fumes. I love it! But if you want to know more about this, definitely check out The Shakespeare Conspiracy, presented by Derek Jacobi, as well as the play-slash-book School of Night, which showed how a lot of the authors during that era were working for the Queen, sometimes as a double agent, and they were all really into wizardry and demonology. So check that out, and please consider signing the Declaration of Reasonable Doubt. 
Now, stay tuned for my interview with Michael Ryan of Archetype Pictures. Hey, Michael. Hey, can you hear me pretty well? Yeah. So what's the latest with Cosmic Gate? Well, first you have to ask, well, what it is. And that's actually a term that I believe is should be um, uh, really credited to Stanton Friedman. And if anybody wants to really uh, see a more empirical understanding of this phenomenon, whether it's you know, government cover-ups on um, extraterrestrial or UAP or UFO phenomena. UAP stands for unidentified aerial phenomenon, which is more of the 21st century version versus the unidentified flying objects. Um, Friedman is really kind of, kind of like the godfather of the entire investigative world of UFOs. And he's the one who ultimately discovered as an investigative journalist, the Roswell incident. And that's so he's the one who co- uh, who coined the term cosmic gate. Right. But just because they found UFOs doesn't mean aliens are real. Uh, technically, yes, it could mean that aliens are real because back in the 50s and in the 40s, we did not have that kind of technology. OK, so you could basically scratch that. Um, so if you're seeing UFO phenomena, for example, let's take a look at example, the UFO case of the white house ufo versus washington dc 1952 they call it the washington flap or the dc ufo incident in july 29th Mm. and that was literally serious and truman was really concerned about this now that's an incident where aircraft were doing things that nobody in our government had the ability to do at the time so the only reasonable and logical explanation, especially considering the Roswell incident and multiple sightings that have been reported even before then, that they're otherworldly. Okay, they're, and, and you have to factor in that UFOs, not all, as Stanton would say, are UFOs. Most aren't UFOs, by the way. So not every fucking sighting is a UFO. Matter of fact, a lot of it can actually be explained away very, very quickly. Right. Sometimes um, it's it, just like clouds obscuring the moon in it, a weird way. It, it, there's all, yeah, it could be that, or it could be just as simple, something as simple as a bird flying and your <laughs> peripheral vision has a distortion of it. Right. There's all kinds of things that do actually are rational. They're scientifically explored in an empirical process, which was the Blue Book report uh, generated by F. Allen Hynek. Look him up. He kind of went back and forth within it, but he also was told by the government, and he literally said this, to find any way to debunk anything to do with this particular subject because there is national security issues involved because the government at the time and to this day has been very concerned about the public knowing anything about this phenomenon. And they have went out, uh, out of their way 
to try and find the, including Bill Condon, the Condon Report, which is another example that has a lot of history behind it. Um, all these different things have been set up to try and either label anybody who's studying this as a kook, conspiracy theorist, or um, pseudoscience, which, which actually the methods in some of these, especially the Condon Report, were done pseudoscientifically. They excluded all kinds of things. They just made up shit, actually. Yeah. They really did. They, they would make up things. I guess so. Uh, well, they would just write a report and say, oh, well, let's just explain it this way. Even though in court, and I think it was in the 60s, the late 60s, they actually, you know, they op I think there was an example, and, and correct me if I'm wrong, because I don't want to give information that is incorrect. This is the thing about the UFO, the UAP, and the extraterrestrial phenomena. You have to definitely get the right sources. Otherwise, you're going to run into a field of speculation and conspiracy, which will discredit what's actually available to you as solid case and evidence uh, over 70 years, uh, including blacked out documents by the uh, CIA and the Pentagon, massive amounts of blacked out documents well, on you, this particular subject. Um, you maybe know? we should go back and why don't you just break down what happened in Roswell for us? Well, Roswell's, we'll get to that, but the cosmic gate basically is the term that Stanton Friedman, as far as I know, he's the one who basically coined it, uh, to term the idea, uh, not just the idea, the actual reality that the NSA, the Pentagon, the United States, certain people within government, not the entire government, it's compartmentalized, not everybody knows about all this stuff, have been covering up evidence. And some of it has actually been conceded, such as recently when the United States, the Pentagon actually said millions of dollars was indeed, um, was indeed uh, used part of a program for national security they already had this going on in the 50s by the way project blue book uh special report 14 already concluded that um 10 i think it was five to ten percent of their sightings were legitimate uaps and this is from a scientific perspective and there were about four thousand sightings that they had discovered that a huge portion of them were actually solid uh, it doesn't matter all north america or just the US? That, that was that was the united states funded system to where people could report these things and then they had a side variation of it that was going directly to the National Security Agency at the time to where they would actually continue doing it to provide national security uh, assistance because, you know, they want to know. Why do you think the government, why do you think these particular level up want to know what's going on? Because we're talking about national security, talking about uh, ships that have, you know, extremely incredible uh, technology that could pose technically a threat especially if they're flying around nuclear sites with weapons on them. And it's not necessarily coincidental that Roswell was right down the street from the Manhattan Project. As soon as I uh, started researching the UFO topic, I noticed that they were happening, you know, disproportionately in areas where nuclear devices were being produced. So, I mean, do you think that... Yeah, this... we'll talk about Los Alamos and Trinity. Right, and Trinity, right. And, and the Trinity Project apparently had about 100,000 people working on it. Okay, it was completely secret. Nobody really knew about it except primarily that group. It was totally compartmentalized. And for the audience, compartmentalized means need to know. It means you have a rank and file pyramidal hierarchy structure. It is not democratic. It is not transparency based. It is need to know. Even the president to this day does not have access to that kind of information by law. Well, of because course they're he'd be tweeting about it from the toilet if he knew. That's anything. right. <laughs> That's exactly why they put that in there, because they were worried about anybody blowing the whistle on anything they deemed would be either a present threat to national security or would be a present threat 
to their own particular interests, whomever is actually involved with most of these programs. Now, so, but it seems like the, the nuclear energies are like attracting these otherworldly forces. Why would they be concerned about nuclear power? It's not for propulsion, not for energy sources, not for that kind of thing. What do we primarily have used it for? We've blown up human beings. That's right. And, and what kind of history does a human species have had for a long time? War. We're very war colonizing. We've had that history for a long time. We're trying to figure out how to get away from that. But that has come out with so many externalities, including the ability to destroy the entire planet. So are you saying that you see this as sort of a form of divine intervention? No. I, I think, uh, I mean, that's one way of looking at it. But don't you think a species would be concerned if we ever, ever figured out interstellar flight that we might actually be a threat to other civilizations? Well, believe it or not, one of the very first films I ever appeared in was made by Dylan Altier, and it was called Interference. And the premise was that aliens are confronting us because human beings have been screwing up their channels this whole time. So who knows how long we've really been disturbing the entire galaxy. There's that. Okay, if that's one example. Maybe, you know, Stan Friedman made a few examples, which I thought were one of them was very funny. Maybe this is just like um, a developing species. And maybe their species comes over here and does analysis like for a college degree. Maybe you have a bunch of extraterrestrials like, hey, we're going to go over to this one planet near this particular system and we're going to study the progress of a particular civilization for our college thesis. Maybe it's a prerequisite for somebody to learn something, you know, like we would at a zoo when we go in and study fucking animals. Another example could be intervention, like you said, genetic manipulation. Now, why would a species who is interested in doing that create genetic manipulation? Maybe they're what you would call a caretaker civilization. Exactly. Maybe they it's actually, kind of maybe they actually, correct, and not guardians in the way you would think of like angels. They would be kind of like the Star Trek version. Let's say they, well, like now a... see the Star Trek has the prime directive. Their idea is don't interfere because it actually creates more externalities that could actually create more problems than normal. Sure. So they let the natural thing but, go. So it's laissez-faire. once we start developing nukes, it's almost like a UN regulatory well, that, inspector going in. That for... becomes a threat. And yes, that could be a big problem uh, for a potential civilization that is known for colonizing and controlling things, especially with the current system that we're in. But you look at like just the panic state and if even somebody, an intellectual like Hawking was sort of panicked about this stuff, then don't you think maybe it's good that they've been covering this all up just because? No. Back then it made sense. Keep in mind when things are classified, um, especially after World War II, uh, people did have a significant pride in keeping secrets. Now, we could talk about the Roswell Institute, which I would like to talk about because People should know what that really is. It's not just some, you know, thing where an event happened. Of, you know, there's a lot of detail behind it of why that actually is so significant, including the person who was in charge of the first, um, you know, investigation on it, which his name was, um, his name was Jesse Marcel, and he went to a guy named William Brazel. William Brazel is the ranch owner, and he's the one who found all the pieces of wreckage. Uh, now there were two sites which most people don't actually know about the Roswell site. There was the Corona site, and there was Brazel's property. It didn't actually that happen at Roswell. Right? 
Right. But that didn't even happen at Roswell. The crash didn't actually take place in the town of Roswell. It took place. The first part of it took place in William Brazel's ranch, which I believe is 20 or 25 miles outside of Roswell. It's kind of like finding property. out that the Las Vegas Strip isn't even in Las Vegas County. Correct. <laughs> and here's the other thing. The uh, the actual majority of the ship and the the alleged bodies that were recovered that happened in Corona. That's why it's called Crash in Corona by Stanton Friedman. Huh. It's not Crash in Roswell. It's Crash in Corona. Anyway, so that's those are things that, you know, because the pop culture always likes to take big highlights out of this. Part of that is actually a disinformation campaign. Mm. And it has been proven and declassified that the government has willfully disinform, disinformed the public to try and get them away from asking questions about this phenomena. This is a written fact, and you can find it in the Library of Congress. There is a, several different documents that reflect from the highest levels of military intelligence that they actually had a program to try and disinform the public about this subject. That has been proven. I don't have the document. I would suggest, once again, going to MUFON, uh, UFO Evidence, uh, Crash at Corona, and look at Science and the Mysteries of Flying Saucers by Stanton Friedman, and then, of course, the Library of Congress. Uh, not the Library of Congress. National Archives. Sorry. Okay. I said Library and, of Congress. And that was in the, the National Archives. National Security? They disinformed us? My personal opinion isn't just national security. If a group who is funded by corporate interests and they want control and dominion, and what is the ultimate goal of most business corporations it's to control the market it's to dominate yes it's to dominate to basically own and control ultimately because that's the highest level of profit for them right so it's incentivized in that particular thing whoever has control basically has everything right so who in their right mind would want to share that kind of technology with anybody you know when you're dealing with this kind of phenomenon and you got resources for this if you want to get total clearance on this it doesn't just have to come from people asking through the Freedom of Information Act, which actually is to your benefit. You have the Freedom of Information Act. Use it. You can actually demand these things. You have the right as the public. It is your information. Ultimately, generationally, as taxpayers, you paid for it. Matter of fact, there is trillions of dollars missing through special access programs that certain aspects of the Pentagon have used for these things. And that should be totally your knowledge. You paid for it. This is supposedly supposed to be a democratic republic. So, yes, you are entitled to that information. Ask and ask and ask, and it will be released. Eventually, it gets so, it gets so intense that they actually do. This is what happened in, in the UK. That's why the British Ministry of Defense had to start releasing things. There was so much pressure from certain groups to have that information provided to the public, and it worked. So protests demands based on your polity do actually work to release things especially when you're looking for transparency you can create bills you can sign in the law saying if you have this information now don't be surprised if you run into documents that are blacked out that's exactly how they're they try redacted. that's how they're redacted correct and uh, and which is unacceptable but you know you also might want to consider having the national security act and the espionage act rewritten and getting the right people in the Senate and the Congress to support that rewriting, to allow the public more knowledge into national security. So um, I was going to just make the point that, you know, so many people are thrown off when the word aliens is used, because, I mean, I think that word in and of itself is so misleading, because whatever it is, it's not alien to us. You know, it's more of an extended family member. 
Yeah, I would. Well, that's a very interesting way of putting it. Let's, as a matter of fact, you, I don't disagree. I think the word alien actually has a connotation of something that could intentionally um, mean scary or threat or, you know, alien really. I mean, obviously, the, the terminology is like alien, it means it's foreign to right. us. But when you talk about alien reference to a visitor, which actually is a very cordial way of putting it, a visitor. Um, and, you know, let's just say they are visitors. Now, some could be uh, benevolent and some could be um, malicious. You don't know. Um, so, that I mean, that's the whole thing is, in my opinion, uh, I think extraterrestrial is fine, uh, you know, or intergalactic species someone from another place a person and keep in mind species could be all kinds of things they're not just uh, now when you're talking about species uh, that also includes everything so I, I wanted to go back to the term et i i find that kind of interesting because it feels almost like it's more of a reference to us and what we're really capable of in the future i mean you look at the et movie i mean the kid's name is elliot E.T. might as well be short for Elliot. That's interesting. Right. That's an, and it's, that's an interesting. It's, all it really means is more than terrestrial. Well, in some respects, how we perceive that concept, it means that this is a, a species that is both sentient, intelligent, and far more advanced in a lot of ways. Well, are and, you open to the idea that it's like our higher selves or our future selves? I think that that's a very interesting question. I think that consciousness in regards to I think consciousness, like our bodies, evolves. I do. I think that um, you could call that the exoteric versus the esoteric. Mm -hmm. The higher level perspective, the enlightened consciousness, uh, that is the basically the perception that changes with time and how we understand both a commonality of principle in the universe that's universal to us as human beings, as well as our understanding to our behavior towards others. And our understanding of our relationship with the cosmos as it, as we evolve learning more about the interactive reality that we both experience on both an objective and a subjective level so you could say that's an esoteric concept which is discussed significantly in things like eastern occultism or even western occultism such as the freemasons or such as the kabbalah or you go over to uh, into the dynamics which really goes into almost intergalactic occultism which would be uh, Buddhism and Taoism and Zen and uh, other things like the I Ching and uh, so on and so forth. So all those things have an esoteric perspective on consciousness. Um, so, yeah, is it possible that an extraterrestrial could also be symbolic of our aspirations to be higher minded, higher intelligent, more, um, you can even say compassionate or reasonable, uh, more tempered, and far more developed in our technology as opposed to the crude kind of reality we exist in today. You know what I'm saying? Right. So yeah, yeah, that is, that's true. And that would also, that would also conclude in some respects that these types of understanding or these types of things are cyclical and they go through cycles and, yeah. and you know what I'm saying? And so that would mean also in a, in a vast universe, there are other forms of consciousness in species that are sentient that are also going through their cycles as well with a similar, perhaps very, very um, historically uh, similar kind of experience. 
you mentioned some of the um, some of the ancients, or at least some of the great medieval works of uh, mysticism, like Kabbalah. So, what do you think about uh, the notion that it could be some kind of an ancient civilization that was here before us and disappeared? Are you talking about like into the like nano the... world? What right? Well, it kind of ties in with the Atlantis Anything mythology. It... Right or Lemur, or excuse me, uh, uh, land of Mu and Lemuria, Lemuria and things like that. Yeah, you're talking about interdimensional realities and interdimensional planes. And I guess it would be more intra. Like, uh, well, in, in quantum physics, we know that this is not only possible; it's happening. That there is um, interdimensional quantum mechanical laws that are happening, and we we know like Schrodinger's cat, and then you look at uh, quantum superposition, super uh, quantum superposition, and things like that, and how particles are always moving and shaping. And when it, when we actually observe them, they actually freeze. Not freeze, but they actually we affect literally the the particle itself when we actually observe it. So it sure. affects the behavior. So there's an interreactive that with power interdimensional. Yeah, the power of consciousness, also the interaction between one dimension and another. So is it possible that there have been ancient civilizations that are here? There's a lot of very interesting evidence around that has been dug up. Now, could be attributed to an, uh, an older civilization or uh, a future civilization that left, or not future civilization, but a more advanced civilization from the, you know, that we would consider more futuristic that existed. Uh, you know, there's a lot of, and I say circumstantial, uh, conservatively, because, um, you know, you don't want to sit there and, and, and from a scientific perspective, you don't want to deny the scientific uh, process through that to find empirical evidence that shows this. But there is a lot of interesting things that do are not accounted for. And they are very unusual. And it um, would make you know, sense why they made themselves known once we started messing with nukes. Considering I, I uh, think that it, there is a strong correlation between an advanced um, extraterrestrial presence flying around in a very you know, advanced form of, uh, uh, of anti-gravitational, uh, you know, flight machines that probably have a mothership, most likely, an intergalactic, one that's capable of intergalactic flight that does not use um, uh, speed of light. It probably uses FTL in the sense of like warping dimensional planes, being able to basically bend time and space to What's go from FTL? one place uh, faster than light. And I, I think that kind of travel is actually not a propulsion system at all. I think it's the ability to uh, use gravitational mass and actually bend space and time completely so you can move very slowly while bringing one part of space to another very quick, you know, very closely together. So you don't have to actually travel huge distances. Or use of uh, uh, wormholes. Right. Yeah, but that would be similar to that concept. Without even creating a wormhole, perhaps you created some kind of engine that actually can create that warp all the way around the ship. There's an actual concept called the albicuriary drive. We talked about this before. I think that's how it's pronounced. But that's actually theoretically possible still going into the laws of special relativity. Uh, we just don't know how to do it as far as we know unless somebody – who has a lot of money, who's been involved with special access programs, might have discovered how to do it already, and they're just not telling us. But regardless, um, you know, an extraterrestrial species that, you know, has that technology, as flying around, would be concerned about the volatility and the hostility of the human species. About us. Well, also, um, Terrence McKenna, if you read the Archaic Revival, he's got some really interesting writings on um, the intergalactic nature of mushrooms. And, you know, I'm reading this, like, very technical scientific jargon, and all of a sudden it's like, oh, and the mushrooms are purple because they had to survive the intergalactic temperatures. And it seems like they're, you know, planet Earth already has so much, 
I mean, alien life. There's creature. James Cameron did that documentary on all those creatures, you know, in the deep sea that don't need light or oxygen. But what do mm-hmm. you think about the idea of mushrooms being, um, you know, like an otherworldly presence, and that when people take them, sure, they're basically kind of communicating with that consciousness. Why? Why not? Of course. Why not? I mean, there's everything's interdimensionally connected anyway. Everything's quantum mechanically connected. Of course. Why wouldn't it be? If you have a if you have a species that floats or a spore that floats through space, kind of like you see in those movies and you know invasions of the body snatcher. That's a classic. That movie's not really about a spore floating through space. It's actually about the fear of communism or right. the fear of author- or authoritarianism. Um, but regardless, it is fair to say that dust contains from all over the galaxies, flown all over the place. It collects together, creates elements, and creates particles, and so on and so forth, that create what you see today, which is life. And those things contain things from all over the place. So we're completely connected to pieces that are flying around that develop and you know on planets, and we evolve from that. So is it possible that a fungus or something like that, that eventually from you know millions of years ago fell, it's, fell here from a comet or from a meteorite or from somewhere else or just floated into our atmosphere and started evolving over time and actually had its own variation of communication, just the way way it's functioning maybe it doesn't speak and it go out and you know it doesn't necessarily go and uh go to the mall you know and drive a car but it has its own variation of communication with species or maybe another very is even seeded here intentionally could have been i mean you don't know i mean we don't know there could have been a species that was far more advanced and and yeah i mean that's definitely a hypothesis that is worth taking a look into it's fascinating you know that's 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 the ancient astronaut concept where um yeah, of course. I mean, that's Eric von Daniken. That's that's a lot of. There's a lot of science fiction that speculates it. There's astronomers that speculated this. There's indications in certain uh, realms where we've discovered archaeologically that who knows that could be possible. There's been scientists saying that we've been finding elements here that are from other meteorites that have been you know that might have grown. It's amazing uh, looking back how much of this stuff I was actually introduced to through Bill Maher's show in the '90s on ABC, Politically Incorrect, because he had so many guests like um, Lavar Burton. Who showed up one time and he was kind of bridging the gap between this atheist person and a theist um like a bishop and he was saying like hey what if this otherworldly phenomenon is the thing that kind of unites the two philosophies and he left it just ambiguous enough that it could have been something that came here and kind of help to create this world, either intentionally or unintentionally. It's... We're all part of this interdimensional consciousness slash realities of quantum events and so on and so forth. Those are all part of reality. Every aspect of it is but part of But what do you think about this as being the issue, Cosmic Gate, you know, kind of generally speaking, as the uniting force that kind of bridges um, between, you know, I, 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 I think it... Uh, yeah, I don't think that I don't think that um, the disclosure of extraterrestrial intelligence and and the military's history with this and their their experience with it would create the, uh, a problem. I actually think it would elevate people. I think it would change the dynamics of our relationships both with each other and our relationship with the cosmos. The only reason, my personal perception of the reason why a lot of this stuff has not been disclosed is because there's a political advantage and an economic advantage to keeping it to themselves. What do you think about the notion that like Bigfoot or the Loch Ness monster could be these interdimensional entities that are kind of like guardians of some of Earth's more more pristine places trying to kind of keep us dangerous humans out? No, it's I mean that's always an interesting idea. 
um, you need to find solid evidence that supports that. But it, could it be possible that there are sentient forms of leftover um, types of uh, amphibious creatures that exist deep with? We've been, honestly, that could be possible. Not, I'm not saying that you know Loch Ness monster is real or not. I'm saying that we haven't really fully explored actually the depths of all of our oceans. I think the last time I checked statistically, that even with all the technology we have, we we've barely begun to uncover how much is really in our oceans and our seaboards. Uh, you know, so there's a lot there. I mean, uh, you're talking about you know what do they call that? The uh, Sasquatch, the Sasquatch concept. Is it possible that there's a you know this crazy big fuck? thing running around and yeah well you know is it possible sure you know a lot of species are possible in this planet uh but could they be interdimensional i don't know where would you hear that one i'm curious okay so i went to this presentation that was put on by a computer scientist and a med student from san francisco state a woman who was a park ranger of a couple of decades and she was in law enforcement before that and uh someone who goes by the name of Dr. John, who's a psychologist with a private practice. Now, first, I thought it's really interesting that there have been sightings in every single state, multiple sightings every single year. It's not just a Northwestern thing. And Dr. John happens to be one of those clinicians who other shrinks call him up because They've got patients who are like, hey, I saw Bigfoot. And he's like, no, no, no. You've just seen some sort of uh, weird manifestation of an unresolved archetype. And then they say, please call Dr. John. And the clinician calls him and he says, yes, they saw Bigfoot. And then that person apologizes who doubted their patient. And um, because, you know, Dr. John is out there setting the record straight. Now, it's more Graham Hancock's theory that uh, the Bigfoot are some sort of interdimensional, uh, perhaps, guardians, and that they're perhaps uh, maybe even a mirage, but they are there to protect, um, you know, those sacred parts of the Earth. Um, it could even be Mother Nature's own defense system, or in some way, our own consciousness creating this hallucination to keep us away. Now, um, Dr. John, I mean, you'd have to go to one of his presentations to really see it all, but he did all kinds of experiments uh, and laid out different traps and whatnot and captured lots of really interesting footage. And yeah, um, I mean, I'm really more on the fence, but there's a lot of convincing evidence that it's not just some animal. It's something very similar to us. But what's so funny about it is even if, let's say that was actually a real case or let's say that's true right uh all you're revealing is that there's just another species on this planet amongst millions yeah you know that's that's really what the thing is is what are we revealing here oh well it's a the species we just didn't know about you know we ignore it i mean it's the same thing like the Loch Ness monster could be a, you know a remnant of the prehistoric age for all we know or it could be literally a you know it could be you know it, it's not as mysterious as you think it would be if it was ever discovered to be actually real somebody captures one oh. or they you know they find one laying on the, on you know on the beach and they got a, a specimen they're going to take it to a lab carbon date it find out what it is ultimately it's another it's another um family member of our ecosystem do you know about the crowley connection to loch ness no, I don't. No, yeah, I don't. Because we, we had talked about how 1947, the year Roswell occurred, was the same year that uh, Crowley died. So it's interesting, all the esoteric and occult overlap. But it um, it turns out um, the Lisbon house, Crowley bought that place. It was 
Yeah, I'm sure there were, obviously there's always been rumors of like weird lizard things. You know, Scotland is notorious. In fact, there's a joke about if you ever have a Scottish plumber, they're going to sprinkle blood before looking at your pipes just to get rid of the demons. So it's a very (laughs) superstitious kind of place. But also they get insane amounts of light. And there was a particular undertaking that Crowley wanted to do. And, you know, also this shows you how how uh, privileged he was. <laughs> you know, magic was kind of this thing just for a bunch of rich white boys at the time. It's like, OK, I'm going to just spend six months doing this, you know, magic uh, undertaking. Sure. But he got this. And, and, because... and somebody give, and somebody actually funds him. Somebody's like, cool. Well, uh, well he had the money. Yeah. I mean, it was uh, he was an heir to. Um, oh, oh, was he really? I yeah, it was like uh, an ale. His grandpa had made like an ale that did really well. I forgot what it was called. So he got this place and, you know, uh, it was really close to the Lake Ness and he did this ritual and apparently like he never finished it. I think McGregor Mathers summoned him uh, out to France. It was some kind of emergency. And so Crowley basically did this huge, long six month invocation and then never did the evocation. He never banished whatever it is that he invoked. And a lot of people are saying yeah, it was like, and this was actually a Scottish, it was a documentary I saw on BBC Scotland. You know, BBC's great at kind of, you know, they do BBC America, BBC Wales. Yeah. So they made this just for the Scots. So that's, that's why it's cool. just, it's like so that. deep. Yeah, just seeped in this stuff. But um, yeah, I thought that was such an interesting concept that it was, this monster is basically, yeah, it's like a dimension that Crowley tapped into and, you know, he just it was basically always there, but he just made it more visible. That's interesting. No, it's interesting. I mean, that's I'm, I have to check out the documentary. It sounds very entertaining. Yeah. There's some interesting other concepts like the, you know, the, uh, you know, the, the uh, you know, the when you go back into like uh, World War Two and you go back into some of the secret societies that were involved with the Germans, you know, there were some pretty pretty out there occult um, secret societies that were involved to try to uncover or they were involved with other things. Um, you know, I saw a couple of documentaries on that and then I did some more research and looked into a couple of um, areas where um, some of that stuff actually was real, like some of these societies were real. And one of them was um, there was a, I forgot his name, Admiral Richard Byrd, I think his name was. They oh, went yeah. down with a huge, yeah, went down to Antarctica mm-hmm. and they turned around and they lost, they were attacked and they actually kept it confidential. It became top secret, and he couldn't discuss why, but he said there was something there, meaning that they actually had some kind of machine that was far more advanced than anything anybody had down in Antarctica, and he hinted at that. And they didn't go down there to just search for something. They went down there with a full arsenal, and I and, and it was a top, and they did not have a – it was not declassified as to why they went down there with so many boats and ships. Now, it was speculated that – the German Nazi group, uh, the the very elite of that pers- of that political faction, had built a underground base in Antarctica for years. They were working on stuff down there because there was plenty of evidence to show they had um, they had went down there. They even mapped the entire Antarctic surface uh, with planes and whatnot. So there were there was a, an incredible amount of resources and money and 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 military presence expend you know spent on the Antarctica region. Uh, the U.S. Navy went down there fully armed, and they came back with uh, missing a couple of blown-up ships and shit. And they couldn't. They didn't explain why. But Bird did but, state. I saw the interview on TV, yeah. like in the early '50s, and he said, "Yeah, after going to the Antarctic, 
Uh, I know that we'll never need to drill for oil again. We'll never need, you know, to research. Right. So uh, somebody's hiding. Yeah. So so there's something being hidden there for a reason, which means that there's something we don't know is the public that's that people in greater forms of power with much more top secret clearance have access to. So that would be an interest. That would be uh, something you might want to ask about in the Freedom of Information Act to get um, to get that declassified. That might be interesting. So I um I got really turned off to the idea of like any kind of intergalactic intervention for a while because I was um I was watching so many documentaries that kept trying to sort of tie uh, the pyramids and, of of Giza and Stonehenge and all this stuff into it as if like that was all the best evidence out there and then yeah. somebody showed me just a great little nature documentary on ants and how they can all kind of become psychic they they turn into a super organism and they build the most intricate underground structures and it's just so meticulous and i'm like dude if ants can do this stuff we don't need aliens to help us build amazing structures oh, and stuff so does it bother you that that so much um of this lore is kind of tied in with stuff like the pyramids and Stonehenge. Human beings are fully capable of doing all kinds of pretty amazing things. But yeah, that's interesting. So you're saying like um, with the pyramids and Giza and, and the Stonehenge, now are you talking about the relationships between all these uh, interesting sites or these? Uh... Right. Well, just a lot of people use those as evidence of some kind of ancient astronauts. Um, there's sure. also the... So well, there's a similarity. There's a lot of yeah that they claim like giants must have built it, and um, yeah, it's just it's it's fascinating. Well, there's, but there's, it also seems like a form of escapism and lazy intellectualism. Like rather than explore Andy. our unknown powers and where we've already been in that cyclical sort of dynamic, uh, it's like, hey, fuck you! Somebody else must have done it. Don't worry about it. Yeah, and I think that's where a lot of people from archaeology and science really get uh, they get frustrated because the first thing you don't want to sit there and assume like Pumapunku is an amazing zone, uh, the the blocks that are there and the the precision and the kind of technology that had to be created to create such you know uh, intricate markings on these things to uh, for architectural purposes would indicate mathematics and geometry and all kinds of stuff, um, but. That doesn't necessarily mean human beings are incapable of that. Are people looking to have a savior and a species from another planet to fix their problems? I think that's unfortunate that people would do that. Or they'd look to something else to solve it. it again, it's no different than somebody looking at a patriarch and saying, oh, well, that will just solve all our problems. Uh, human beings really need to take ownership and, and, and stop giving themselves such poor credit for their ability to achieve and to create and to discover new ways of problem solving and creation in this world. So regardless as to whether or not UFOs are real and in light of how, um, you know, you were just talking about salvationist thinking and religion we know can be used to control people, especially gullible people. And there's a lot of conspiracy nuts out there who are willing to believe some pretty kooky things. So could you see this technology as being used to stage some sort of a rapture? And how would we know if it's even real or not? Well, we're already dealing with that, which is the fact that we have nuclear weapons. So, I mean, and we have nanotechnology, which could turn into some really dangerous things. And AI is around the corner. So our propensity on mass destruction and, you know, extinction with technology is already here. 
you're just adding more weapons to the store. You know, you're just adding more of an arsenal with new with new ideas of how to do it. So it's not like we couldn't do that now. I've heard of a conspiracy uh, and some people have spoken of military using actually really high advanced technology to fake an alien invasion. Right. That I've heard. And that was also discussed in the X-Files episodes, too, by the way. Dude, that was in a Brady Bunch episode. Yeah, yeah. So, (laughs) I mean, but then again, don't put it past anything the Pentagon would do to try and create, you know, scarcity. Um, I gotta let you go. I'll talk to you later, okay? Yeah. very happy to have on the line with me now from an undisclosed location author of gift of the shaper and active duty member of the united states air force dl jennings well first off thank you so much for your service oh man absolutely thanks for your support i really appreciate it so i uh i understand gift of the shaper is your first book congratulations thanks a lot man yeah absolutely sure so what gave you the idea for it well so the whole journey has been really kind of crazy, and I'd have to say it really started on this deployment about five years ago when I was bored out of my mind. <laughs> we were in a place with little to no internet access, and I found out there's actually a limit to how many times you can play Candy Crush on your iPad and not want to kill someone. <laughs> so, uh, you know, I took a breath. Uh, I kind of sat back, and, you know, I was thinking, so at the time I was reading this series called Wheel of Time. It's uh, this amazing fantasy series by a guy named Robert Jordan. Hmm. And, uh, you know, it's a, like I said, it's this huge, incredible fantasy world. And as I was sitting there, something just kind of clicked on me. And it was like, you know, well, I grew up reading fantasy. I know the basics of good storytelling. And I paid attention in English class. So, you know, maybe I could write a fantasy story. And... Uh, one day I just, you know, so I, so I subscribed to the Stephen King school of writing, which is just write. Yeah. So I sat down with my iPad, which was the only thing I had out there. And, uh, I just started writing. Just let it flow. I did. Yeah. Uh, the first thing, the first line I put on paper actually ended up being the opening to the book, which was night breathed out as the dawn breathed in. So I was, I was pretty proud of that one. And I just kind of went from there. Do you want to give us like a little synopsis? So this guy, Thornton, he's our main character, and he finds himself caught in this war between two sides. One side worships this god called the Breaker of the Dawn, and the other side uh, is trying to keep him in his prison, where, where this god has been kind of in prison for the last, you know, thousand years or whatever. Um, so Thornton finds that he uh, is... I won't say so much in possession of, but uh, is finds himself around this uh, item that is actually the key to this God's release, the Breaker of the Dawn. So 
Um, it's basically chronicles the struggle of Thornton and his friends fighting against the uh, the army of these people who, who worship the breaker and uh, basically trying to keep him in his prison where he should be. So very cool. Uh, Thank you. I appreciate it, man. I, it's, it was a hell of a lot of fun to write. And uh, I'll tell you what, it's, uh, there's really nothing as, as, as really satisfying as, as getting a piece of, of, of fiction out there. So it was a lot of, it was a blast. And I heard you got to speak at the Nebula Awards this year. What? Yes. Uh, so, oh what, man. What was that like? Yeah. So that was, that was an experience. I'll tell you what. So I always like to say, I always like to tell people who don't really know what the nebulas are. It's basically the Oscars for science fiction and fantasy awards. So, you know, lots of, uh, you know, famous authors showing up. I even recognized a couple. I got a selfie with one. Uh, <laughs> I think, he, you know, he definitely made my day. I'm sure I ruined his. But, Which one? Uh, Patrick Rothfuss. He's the author of this book called The Name of the Wind, if you've ever heard of it. Oh, uh, Yes. Yeah, so it, it, incredible writer, and um, I was, uh, you know, when I posted the the picture online, uh, people were saying, you know, tell him to finish the third book because it's been like ten years or something like that. So, <laughs> any anyone listening who is familiar with fantasy in the slightest is, is going to know that uh, that was the first thing that went through my head. Yeah, but uh, to answer your question, so I wasn't like top billing, you know, like uh, Patrick Rothfuss, he had like four events or whatever. But um, the the one thing I did kind of participate in was this event that was sort of aimed at giving budding authors the chance to really shine. Um, I did get a uh, this really amazing chance to meet a bunch of up and coming authors as uh, as well, which was actually really cool. So you know, kind of solidifying some friendships in there, like meeting people who are at the same career, uh, at the same point in their career as I am, you know, uh, either having just published a book or are uh, soon having one come out. So, and so where can people order it? So on Amazon right now, if you just type in gift of the shaper, uh, I'm lucky enough to be the first hit, uh, which is, we, I spent a lot of time, a lot of effort doing that, uh, right. because, Believe it or not, there are some other, uh, you know, gift and shaper. Uh, Definitely come up with some interesting results if you if you type them in by yourself. But uh, <laughs> so now I am uh, the top hit. If you if you Google gift of the shaper, also um, you can you can find a whole bunch of stuff related to it. Like I got YouTube videos of of me doing readings from the chapters and stuff like that. So um, and if anybody who's listening wants to say hi to me. Um, I'm also, you can find some of my contact info online. So Excellent. That seems to happen to every author I know is not only the same year that you have something come out. It's there's always something that's like of maybe similar subject matter and a similar oh, title. And while Absolutely. Like on, on one hand, it's like, oh, I love serendipity. On the other hand, it's like, man, that's annoying, especially when they yeah. have somebody bigger attached to the other one or, you know, comes out just a little bit before yours. It's really annoying. If you're familiar with this band, so they're called Churches, but it's spelled oh, yeah. C-H-V-R-C-H-E-S. -C the Latin And they did spelling. it for exactly that reason. They were like, we need to differentiate ourselves in Google searches. <laughs> right. Well, in fact, I uh, I heard that's the whole reason the Beatles spelled their name the, the way they did. No. Because they wanted to be Googled uh, correctly. <laughs> <laughs> Man, I'll tell you, that Paul McCartney was ahead of his time. <laughs> So has your background in defense influenced you as an author? So that's actually, I love that question because uh, this was something that, so writing was something that I'd never really thought I could do before. I'd never really even pursued it as a career. 
Um, so before I joined the Air Force, I was making just over minimum wage working at a record store. Uh, I had no goals in life, and I was absolutely happy with that. But um, for some reason, after I joined and, uh, you know, some of the training that I went through, something I think clicked inside me. It was like all of a sudden after I've, I've I, you know, I've met these goals and I've gone through some of the training that I went through, I figured if I can do this stuff, like there's really not anything that I can't do. And that's seriously the the mentality that, that I kind of uh, stuck with. And I absolutely credit my time in the Air Force for, for sort of taking me over that hump. Um, there was a the whole process of becoming published, you know, sending out query letters to uh, to agents, sending them out to uh, publishing houses. It is a daunting process, and it's full of rejection. So, uh, you know, I really think that, you know, this like some of the training that I went through absolutely gave me this drive to succeed. Can you tell us a little bit about like what a typical mission is like? Sure. So. I am a, what's called an Airborne Intelligence Surveillance and Reconnaissance Operator. That's the whole title. I know it's a mouthful, but uh, <laughs> believe it or not, it's actually uh, it actually makes sense, and it's way cooler than it sounds. So uh, I work under the Air Force Special Operations Command, or AFSOC, as uh, some, some of your listeners might be uh, familiar with that. Oh. So it, it falls under the SOCOM branch, I'm sure. Uh, I'm sure you might be familiar with SOCOM at least. Oh yeah. Uh, as operators, we'll we'll fly on any number of special operations platforms. So like you know any number of of planes basically. Uh, most of the time, I'll find myself on the radio, kind of providing threat warnings and 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 findings to ground troop commanders. Um, so and I actually I've got so I have three thousand hours of flight time and about twenty five hundred that of that has come in combat. So, uh, you know, this is like, uh, my job basically is to go out and, and support guys on the ground. You know, like I said, uh, it, it involves a lot of radio work, but, um, it's definitely, uh, an extremely cool experience. So especially, you know, being up there in that plane, um, you know, talking to the crew, um, and then, you know, relaying messages and stuff to, to dudes on the ground. So definitely very rewarding for sure. Any crazy stories you can share with us? Oh, man. Uh, so I will never forget my first deployment to Iraq. Um, so as a, as a little bit of a backstory, way early on in my career, when I was first starting out, I was a Korean linguist. Hmm. Uh, yeah, right? Surprising, I know, especially given what I do now. But um, So I went through language training with about 60 other people, they were from all four branches. You had, uh, you know, Army, Air Force, Navy, and Marines. So that took about a year and a half when we were out in um, Monterey. At, it was called the Defense Language Institute of Monterey. So fast forward about five years later, and I changed jobs into what I'm doing now. So I found myself, so this is, this is the part of the story where I say, no shit, there I was. <laughs> Uh, I found myself on a helicopter being transported to this uh, remote outstation. So there was about maybe 50 or 100 other people there with me. I was decked out in my body armor, and at that point, I felt like a kid who was kind of wearing his dad's suit, you know, that's too big for him. Right. You know, I, I, I was sure I looked ridiculous because I wasn't in special ops at the time. So I kind of I felt I felt like a fraud, you know, oh. surrounded by 
all these big badass dudes who ate snakes for breakfast. And, you know, here I was eating cookies for my grandma. So, <laughs> um, you know, but eventually, so, uh, you know, we get to the outstation, I get settled in and they made me feel right at home, which was awesome. So a few weeks later, I had grown this super intimidating beard. So, you know, I almost looked like I knew what I was doing, but one day uh, I went out to walk to the flight line where I was going to hop on the plane that I worked on. And on the way out, I made eye contact with this blonde soldier who was wearing civilian clothes like me and rocking a beard like me. But when I got closer, I had this sort of like twinge of recognition and we both kind of stared at each other. And all of a sudden I know why. So here in the middle of the wilds of Iraq, thousands of miles from home, was another one of the Korean linguists that I trained with five years before. Wow. Talk Out about of serendipity. All, right? right? Yeah. You know, for, for two Korean linguists to end up in the middle of Iraq, neither of us could believe that we landed there in the same spot doing the same mission. It, it blew our tiny little minds. And what happened with Jessica Alba? So a few years ago, I was, uh, let's see, two-ish years ago, I was flying back from Mexico from a family vacation, and I noticed this woman in front of me kind of standing in the ticket line with a big sun hat on and sunglasses. Something in the back of my head was like, she looks so familiar. So I couldn't quite place it. I thought she was a friend of mine or something like that, maybe a celebrity, but I thought I knew her from somewhere. And at one point she kind of turns around and, and looked at me and because I'm an idiot, I blurted out, do people ever tell you you look like a celebrity? And I can't remember exactly how I said it, what inflection or whatever, but she kind of gives me this look that was like a mix of sympathy and anger. And she just goes, yeah. And we both kind of go about our business, but um, you know, and she was like sitting in first class and you know, I, I get on. So I'm boarding the plane in coach with, you know, the rest of the poor people and the animals in the back. And there were, I remember this lady who was sitting in front of me, she had this magazine and she pulled it out and, you know, I was, I was like, I kind of glanced over her shoulder and she, I remember hearing her whisper like, ah, Jessica Alba. And I was like, oh my God, wait a second. Holy shit. That's Jessica Alba. I was just, I was just talking to and possibly hitting on Jessica Alba. Oh my God. <laughs> So I, the first thing that I do because, um, you know, I have to tell somebody was, so I went and I posted it on Facebook and I, I still remember the status that I posted almost word for word. And it was something like, I think Jessica Alba is on my plane. And I know this because I just hit on her and, you know, I shut off my phone and you know, that was it. So we were going to fly to Los Angeles. So a few hours later, I opened it up after we land and it had like 200 likes and a bunch of comments from all my friends. And that was significant to me because like uh, a couple years before that, I had been, I'd gotten engaged and I posted on Facebook and it didn't get nearly that many likes. I was like, you know, thanks guys. appreciate your support. But most of them were saying, I don't believe you unless you take a selfie with her, blah, blah, blah. Like most of the comments were like, you need to take a selfie with her. And I knew at that point what I had to do. <laughs> so we clear customs and I see her waiting by the luggage conveyor. And I walk up to her, I was like, I am so sorry, you probably get this all the time. Can I take a picture with you? And you know, she was really gracious about it. She was like, yeah, sure. You know, she gave me her best like fake smile. And I was like, thank you so much. So, you know, I posted the picture of it online, uh, posted it to my friends 
who all lost their mind. And, you know, I went about my business being a minor celebrity among my friends. And <laughs> I didn't really think about it for, for a long time. So fast forward about a year later, and I'm deployed to Afghanistan. And a friend of mine sent me this message on Facebook, and he was like, hey, I was eating at this place in Monterey that I, that I mentioned earlier where I went to language school. He was like, I went, I was eating at this deli, and I saw this picture hanging up. I recognized it. He sends me the picture. It was the one that I took of Jessica Alba, but I was cropped out of the picture. What? Yeah. So this guy, like, I don't, I have no idea because I didn't send it to him. This guy gets a picture of me. And he's like, yeah, and he, he posted up on his wall just a picture of Jessica Alba, which I was like, well, that's hilarious. You know, I think that's the funniest thing in the entire <laughs> world. So I posted it on Imager with a brief synopsis of what happened, you know, blah, blah, blah. Hey, I got cropped out. This is really funny. Um, I think it's hilarious. And, you know, I, again, I shut my phone off and I went to, you know, do my mission thing. And, you know, I come back and like eight hours later, my post has blown up. It made the front page, which I was like, oh, my God. But um, somebody from, like, BuzzFeed contacted me, and they're like, hey, do you mind if we, you know, do a story? I was like, sure. And about an hour later, I get a text message from one of my friends who lived in California, and she goes, uh, hey, Dave, you're on the front page of time.com. And she said, yeah. Yeah, and she sends me the article, and then I got messages from other friends, like People Magazine picked it up, a news station in Seattle did a video. I even found an article about it in Portuguese. So I, I've gone international, and to this day, if you Google Jessica Alba fan selfie, I am the top hit. So you never even stepped foot in that diner? Exactly. <laughs> you, you nailed it. So I know you're not supposed to comment on any contemporary political or sociological topics, but you've seen so much in your line of work. And there are so many things that get kind of uh, seen as kooky or fringe at first, and then they end up becoming embraced and becoming mainstream. And I want to know if there's anything like that you've seen that's been kind of dismissed that you think deserves a closer look. Well, I'll tell you what, um, two things really come to mind with me. It's probably been a little done to death, but um, the first thing I think of is the electric car. Oh. Um, yeah, you know, it's like, um, I, you know, you're probably familiar with that. I, it was a documentary. I think it was in like 2006 or something. It was like, uh, who, killed who killed the electric, the electric yeah. car? Exactly. You know, it's like for me, you know, I'm thinking we've had this technology for how many years it's so beneficial to people. It's going to be end up being cheaper in the long run. Um, there is absolutely no good reason that we should, uh, you know, that we should that we shouldn't be all driving electric cars by now. Um, you know, instead we're, you know, having to rely on you know turning dinosaurs into noise. It's ridiculous. Exactly. You know? Yeah, it's eighteen hundreds technology, and it you turns know? out that the electric car actually goes back to around that time. Um, That's what I've uh, heard. Yeah, I've heard that exact same thing. I uh, actually, I think episode three of this podcast was the renewable revolution one, and I told the story of a friend of mine whose dad had this whole blueprint, and uh, he actually eventually made a working model, but it was a diesel electric hybrid. And it ran on four batteries, and it got 200 miles to the gallon. 
and that went back. Oh it was technology God. that dated back to 1905. But um, I've heard of, you know, obviously there's a lot of different um, reasons, I'm sure, as as far as, you know, what kind of repressed it. But I know one reason is, is just fucking testosterone. You know, dudes wanted cars that, you know, the vroom, oh. <laughs> vroom, vroom. It's like it's got to absolutely it's got to have that you fire. Wanna... You want a car that everyone knows how fast it is when you turn it on and hear it. Exactly. You're absolutely right. So that's one thing, but we definitely should be a lot further along. Yeah, I, I, I totally agree. It's, it's crazy. I mean, you know, it, it, it's so funny to think about like that we're still relying on, on, on this, you know, antiquated technology really. And, you know, kind of sort of tangentially related, but the, like the fact that, um, like nuclear power plants, the, the basically the way that we get power from them is, you know, we like smash these atoms together and what do they do? They boil water. Like that's, that's the, that's the basis for, <laughs> for nuclear power, which is like, you know, the height of man's, you know, scientific technology, the pinnacle of, uh, all right, so we're going to, we're going to boil some water. And this is how, you know, it's like, to me, that's absolutely hilarious. I feel like we really need to make some more progress in areas like that. <laughs> oh, it's a joke. And when you consider how much energy it took to create all of our nuclear facilities, they still sure. haven't even gone net positive as far as Ugh. what they've produced for us. So, you know, it's it's really a money loser. And uh, the risk is not worth it when you look at Three Mile Island and Chernobyl and even uh, San Onofre. Last I checked, um, you know, they had to remove those rods and shut it all down. And I think, or, or I don't know if they actually did this, but they were talking about just burying it in the beach down there. And it's like, what the hell is going to happen, you know, in a couple hundred years if somebody goes digging for pirate treasure and uh, <laughs> boom. <laughs> God, seriously. You know, I just, I just hope that eventually we're, we're able to, um, to make the switch over, like, you following in the footsteps of some of the other countries who are who are switching to like renewable resources and, and uh, renewable energy, I should say. But hey, that's just me. So, um, <laughs> as far as other things, maybe we don't quite yet know about. Is there one particular mystery that you'd like to see solved in this lifetime? Man, I will tell you what. It is the one mystery that I have hung on to since I was a kid, and that is finding out whether or not we are alone in the universe. That is like ever since I was a kid, I have been fascinated by the sheer size and scope of outer space, which is why I think, you know, science fiction and fantasy really resonate with me. Um, you know, it's just like, you know, I'm sure you've gone out and you've looked up at the night sky and been like, those are galaxies out there. That's like an entire universe that's out there. Uh, you know, there's there's no way that we can be the only ones here in the universe. So that's like, that's number one for me, man. You know, I, I love the stuff that um, Tesla is doing. Um, what's, I mean, I'm blanking on his name, right? Elon Musk. All oh, right. I love, I love his adventurous spirit. You know, I think, you know, he, he's got the same love for, for discovery and the same love for outer space that, you know, that I do. Only I don't have billions of dollars at my disposal. So uh, I'm sure if I did, I'd probably be, be doing something like him, like sending, you know, rockets into, you know, sending cars to Mars and rockets into outer space and stuff like that. So, well, hopefully you'll stay in the Air Force long enough that you can advance and take a peek at some of those UFO files. <laughs> what you find out. <laughs> Fingers crossed. <laughs> All right. Well, hey, I can't thank you enough for coming on 
And Dude, uh, thank you so much for having me, man. This is this has been a blast. So, what's the best way for listeners to keep up with you? Do you have a Twitter or a website for the book? Yeah. So um, right now, so dl-jennings.com is my website. Um, I'm not, you know, I'm not rich enough to afford dljennings.com, so I had to put a hyphen in there because <laughs> uh, I I am still enlisted and I am still poor. Um, <laughs> so that's the, that's the best way to, to check out the website. Um, I had a really amazing fellow air force vet who actually was the one who designed and put together, uh, the website for me. His name's Aaron McNanny. So, um, you guys going there and checking out the website, uh, helps him too, which is awesome. Um, just an in- incredible guy, young, young man who is, uh, who just started up his, his own, uh, internet design company. So, uh, an incredibly cool guy. Um, but like I said, if you, if you look up, uh, gift of the shaper, or, uh, if you just type in in DL Jennings into, uh, Google, uh, any one of those things are going to bring you up with me. I am the uh, military looking guy with the beard sometimes. Um, so, you know, I, I, I love hearing from people, uh, which is the most important thing that, uh, I can't emphasize enough. Uh, if you check out DL Jennings on Facebook, um, you know, reach out, get in touch with me. I'd love to hear what you think. If you got questions about, you know, my career in the air force, if you want to hear anything about, uh, the book I'm working on, uh, or, you know, the, uh, gift of the shape or the first book that, that I'm putting out. Um, I absolutely love to hear from people. So feel free to hit me up. 